Shalom, this is Rabbi Talmud Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing the parasha number 39 today called Hukat, which means regulation. This is out of Numbers 19, 1 through 22, 1. So this is the parasha which we usually address the para aduma, that's the red heifer, and the correlation to Yeshua and the process of atonement. Detailed explanation on this subject can be found in the parashot that I've presented before on our website at www.rabdavis.org. This year I want to address a different section. We're going to address the overall theme of this parasha, that death defiles, but there is a way of purification. Now, although not identified directly in the Tanakh as Messianic believers, we have the information in both Testaments that illuminate the One, capital O, who provides the way to salvation and resurrection to a life, that will never end in the abode of Messiah Yeshua. And in this parasha, it's the para aduma, the red heifer, and the process of purification that alludes to Messiah Yeshua's perfection, sacrifice, and the process of purification. Notice that I say process, not instantaneous purification, not instantaneous salvation. So examine, if with me if you will, the second time Moshe was told to address a rock for water, hitting it when God commanded only that he speak to it. Now he had struck the rock before Miriam died. Should he have assumed that when God instructed him to speak to the rock, that hitting it would be an acceptable addition to this behavior? Now we know that hitting the rock was adding to God's word, which is a sin in itself. So what was going on in Moshe's mind? Now the emotions related to loss and grief and death evoke responses that although are categorized, are manifested in many different ways for every individual. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross described five stages of grieving, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, although people may experience anger or depression when mourning a loved one or another type of loss, these experiences do not necessarily occur in order. A grieving individual may skip or vacillate between these stages at any given time. For some, the loss of something or someone dear to them is more than they can bear, and they may commit suicide or totally withdraw from society and the world. Sadly, this incapacitates them by taking them out of action when it comes to glorifying and serving God, which is our purpose in life. We need to develop a peace that comes from knowing that God will provide a peace beyond human understanding when we have no strength of our own when we are at our emotional or physical rope's end. We read that the whole house of Israel mourned for Aharon's death for 30 days. This brings us to Moshe and a possible explanation for why he chose to strike the rock twice rather than speaking to it as God commanded. Moshe was extremely frustrated, and he was angry with the repeated complaints by the people that they should have been left to die in Egypt and no longer had the foods of Egypt. In Numbers 21.5, they even tell them they are, quote, sick of this miserable stuff we're eating, unquote, referring, of all things, to the God-given manna. Now, in the case of Aharon's death, the rabbis were critical of one who mourns too much too long. They said that God himself says of such a person, Are you more compassionate than I am? Mamamides rules a person should not become excessively brokenhearted because of a person's death, as it says, do not weep for the dead nor bemoan him. That's in Jeremiah. And this means do not weep excessively, for death is the way of the world. And one who grieves excessively at the way of the world is a fool. 
With rare exceptions, the outer limit of grief in Jewish law is a year and not more. What we find in the Torah is a 30-day period of mourning described in this parasha. However, humans differ in their individual grief experiences, and nobody can tell you with assurance that they know exactly how you feel, because they can't. You experience death differently than everyone else. The processes and the stages of grief can recur weeks, months, or even years later. But there's a difference in grief and mourning. Mourning is generally dedicated time set aside to remember and honor the loss. Grief can occur anytime or anywhere. We're not always masters of our emotions. Nor does comforting others prepare you for your own experience of, law, of loss. Jewish law regulates outward conduct, not inward feeling. And when it speaks of feelings, like the commands to love and not to hate, Alaka generally translates this into behavioral terms, assuming in the language of the Sefer Har Hinuk that the heart follows the deed. I submit having to listen to people's complaints over and over surely weighed on Moshe's mind. The most striking episode is the moment when the people complain about the lack of water. Moshe does something wrong, and though God sends water from a rock, he also sentences Moshe to an almost unbearable punishment. And he said, because you did not have sufficient faith in me to sanctify me before the Israelites, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I've given you. The commentators debate exactly what he did wrong. Was it that he lost his temper with the people when he said, listen now, you rebels? That he hit the rock instead of speaking to it? That he made it seem as if God was not God, but he and Aharon who were responsible for the water? Shall we bring the water out of this rock for you, he said? In retrospect, we understand that Moshe's sin was not trusting God and not demonstrating that trust as a leader of God's people, to whom much is given, much is required. He had an excellent opportunity to glorify God by simply speaking to the rock. Leaders must learn to control emotions when needed and attend to the task at hand. This is a difficult behavior to learn because we're emotional beings. Emotions are much easier and available to express than deliberate, disciplined thought and action. This is our task, to overcome our human instincts and develop Torah behaviors slash responses as our second nature. It actually should be our first nature, our Torah attitudes and behaviors. Although we can understand what he did, it's more difficult to understand why he hit the rock. He had faced the same problem before, but he had never lost his temper before. In Exodus 15, the Israelites at Marah complained that the water was undrinkable because it was bitter. In Exodus 17, at Massa and Meribah, they complained that there was no water. God then told Moshe to take his staff and hit the rock, and water flowed from it. So when in our parasha, God tells Moshe, take the staff and speak to the rock, could Moshe have thought he was to hit it also? That would be adding to God's words. Again, this is a sin similar to that of Hava, Eve, when she told the serpent what God had said about the forbidden fruit. And if God did not mean him to hit the rock, why did he command him to take his staff? What's even harder to understand is the order of events. God had already told Moshe exactly what to do. Gather the people, speak to the rock, and water will flow. This was before Moshe made his ill-tempered speech beginning, Listen now, you rebels. It's understandable if you lose your composure when you're faced with a problem that seems insolvable. 
This had happened to Moshe earlier when the people complained about the lack of meat. But it takes no sense at all to do so when God has already told you, Speak to the rock, it will pour forth its water, and you will bring water out of the rock for them, and so you will give the community and their livestock water to drink. Moshe had received the solution, so why was he so agitated about the problem? Having gone through the grieving process several times myself, I'm better able to at least understand how grief can affect people and better empathize. When we look at what was going on in Moshe's life immediately before he committed the sin of striking the rock, we read in the first verse of the chapter, the people stopped at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now only then does it state that the people had no water. An ancient tradition explains that the people had hitherto been blessed by a miraculous source of water in the merit of Miriam. When she died, the water ceased. We can't verify this but neither can we refute it with any authority. In the context of this parashah that focuses on the defiling attributes of death and the chesed, unmerited kindness of God, who explains and provided the way of purification, salvation, and redemption through Yeshua abstractly described through the Adumah, we can realize a deeper connection beyond the death of Miriam and the lack of water. We can realize a connection between her death and Moshe's loss of emotional equilibrium. Miriam was his older sister. She was the one who watched over him as he had been placed in the basket in the Nile. She's the one who saw him plucked out of the water. She had the courage and enterprise to speak to Pharaoh's daughter and suggest that he be nursed by a Hebrew, thus reuniting Moshe with his mother and ensuring that he grew up knowing who he was and to, do, uh, and to whom he belonged as a people. He owed his sense of identity to her. Without her, he could never have become the human face of God to the Israelites, the lawgiver, liberator, and prophet. Losing her, he not only lost his sister, he lost the human foundation of his life. Add to this the event the constant complaining of the people for specific foods and water shed light on a plausible explanation for Moshe's behavior, although God expected him to demonstrate a greater faith even in the midst of his personal turmoil. This narrative provides a lesson for us in learning to internalize the concepts of Torah and not let our emotions rule our lives. Take care of the task at hand. Honor God. Glorify God with your behavior before others. And you can grieve and mourn later. The Padashah is about mortality, with the narrative of the Pada describing how we can overcome and be restored to the tabernacle, God. That's the point. God is eternal. We're ephemeral. We must learn to subjugate our human nature to a higher level of behavior as we relate to man and God. As Messianic Jews, we believe in afterlife, life after death, and the resurrection of the dead. But the Tanakh is almost silent on the subject. The dead do not praise God, says the psalm, but we must understand what the word dead means in the context of the Hebrew scriptures. God is to be found in life, this life with all its hazards and dangers, bereavements and grief. We may be no more than dust and ashes, as Abraham said, but life itself is never-ending stream, living water, and it is this that the rite of the red heifer, the Pada Aduma, symbolizes. With great subtlety, the Torah mixes law and the narrative together. The law before the narrative because God provides the cure before the disease. Miriam dies. 
Moshe and Aharon are overwhelmed with grief. Moshe for a moment loses control, and he and Aaron are reminded that they too are mortal and will die before entering the land. Yet this is, as Mamamides said, the way of the world. We are embodied souls. We are flesh and blood. We grow old. We lose those we love. Outwardly we struggle to maintain our composure, but inwardly we weep. Yet life goes on, and what we began, others will continue. May all we do be for the glory of God and his kingdom. Our physical death is not the end. It's a transition period between our life on earth and either heaven or hell. Yahweh Yeshua will be the judge. The Haftarah is out of Shoftim, out of Judges 11, and it describes how the Israelites were attacked by the Ammonites. The Ammonites were descendants of Lot's second son, and Molech was their idol. Jephath's response to the impending attack is an example of how we should handle conflict, a lesson also described in our previous parasha, illustrated by Moshe's actions toward Korak. Jephath first sent a missive to Ammon, declaring peaceful intentions. However, he also mentioned how the Israelites conquered Sikon and Og, mentioned in our parasha. Jephath and Gileadat was the son of a prostitute. He fled from his home because of his siblings' complaints that they would not inherit anything because of his birth status. He settled in the land of Tov, where he grew into a great warrior simply from experience with raiding with some of his friends. Now when the Ammonite nation attacked the people of Israel, Jephthah was the one the Israelites came running to to lead them into battle. Jephthah agreed to lead them based on their offer to make him a leader of Gilead if he agreed. He agreed, and God honored his peaceful attempt to resolve the conflict by allowing the Israelites under Jephthah's command to eliminate the Ammonites. Now, unfortunately, Jephthah also vowed to Adonai that if the Ammonites were delivered unto him, he would sacrifice whatever came out of his doors to greet him upon his return to Adonai as a burnt offering. He had no idea. His only daughter and child was the first one to come out of his doors to meet him. She told Jephthah to keep his vow to Adonai, but that she wanted to go away into the mountains with her friends for two months and mourn as she would die unmarried. She went away for two months. She returned as promised, and Jephthah sacrificed her as he vowed to Adonai. This was not a time that the Israelites typically sacrificed their children. That came much later uh, before the kingdoms were split and the temples were destroyed uh, because of, uh, of sacrificing their children on uh, false idols, false altars to Moloch. Subsequently, it became a law in Israel that women of Israel would go every year for four days to lament the daughter of Jephthah from Gilead. So this obviously was heartbreaking for him, but she understood the importance of making a vow before Adonai. And it should teach us that we have to be very careful. You know, Yeshua teaches us that it's better that we don't make vows and oaths. But if we do, we're obligated to keep them under biblical conditions cited in the uh, Old Testament. Break Kaddish out of John 3. So I'm going to focus on verse 14 and 15 for a moment. And it says, Just as Moshe lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who trusts in him may may have eternal life. It doesn't say everybody's going to be saved. May have eternal life. He provides the way. We have to take it. So our first question might be, why would Yeshua ask us to look up to a serpent? So let's think about what we previously covered in this lesson through the narrative of the Pada Uduma. 
Yeshua became sin for us, unclean in spirit and body, until he ascended to heaven. In our parasha, God tells Moshe that anyone who has been bitten and looks up to a snake on the pole will remain alive. According to the apocryphal book Wisdom of Solomon, which says that the serpent served as lesson and symbol. And it says, He who turned toward it was not saved, not by what he saw, but by you, Savior of all. And the Mishnah contained in the Talmud teaches, Could the serpent slay or the serpent keep alive? It's rather to teach us that when the Israelites directed their thoughts toward on high and kept their hearts in subjection to their Father in heaven, they were healed. Otherwise they perished. Look at the level of trust that they would have to have exhibited. They were bitten by a serpent. Why would they look up to the serpent that bit them? This took a powerful sense of trust and faith in God to look up to the serpent. So it wasn't the serpent they were worshiping. They were trusting God. The lesson for us is that we must actively trust in Yeshua and keep our eyes on him even when we are in the midst of being bitten, so to speak. Shabbat Shalom. I hope uh, you enjoyed this lesson, and if you have, if you've learned anything from it, I invite you to share it with others and guide them to the podcasts. Of course, they're free. Uh, and if you have any questions or comments or suggestions for future teachings that you would like me to address, please go on our website at rabdavis.org and click on the link, Ask the Rabbi, and I will be happy to entertain any questions, uh, comments, or suggestions. Shalom. Thank you for listening.